Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am, Streaming and 3CR Digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Yes, solidarity forever. Good morning, Kim. Good morning, Annie. Yes, Solidarity Breakfast with Kim and Annie and it's uh, 3CR on this Saturday morning. And in the studio, we've got a real live guest. Fantastic. G'day, Jerem. G'day, Annie. How are you doing? Good. Jerem Small, who is going to tell us a little bit more about the Marxist conference we've just been hearing about in the uh, little sponsorship announcement that we've just been listening to. So you're going to be doing a few talks in the organising workers stream. Could you tell us about that? Uh, yeah, well, I'm the industrial organiser for Socialist Alternative, so um, one of, you know, most of my job is working with individual people in their particular workplace, whether that's a warehouse or railway or school or whatever, trying to build a stronger union where they are and a stronger left within that union. But then part of my job is to help to put together the organising worker stream at Marxism. The talk that I'm doing is on the, um, is one of the historical ones. So it's on the obscure, somewhat obscure organisation called the Trade Union Educational League, which was basically the Communist Party of um, the USA's front organisation in the unions in the 1920s. Well, that's fascinating because uh, actually, in a way, that does directly relate to some of the work that's being done behind the scenes to support uh, workers' actions in Australia at the moment. Is, are, there, are there links that you can see? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny reading history. There's always a temptation to sort of try to plonk yeah. exactly what was happening in, you know, Baltimore in 1920-something in, you know, downtown Melbourne or whatever, and you can't really do that. But there are some parallels. Like, well, just to take a step back, probably if anyone knows anything in... Um, we know like, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, most people uh, who have, you know, been around the labour movement would have at least heard of the great sit-down strikes of the 1930s, the birth of the Congress of Industrial Organisations, um, the birth of, uh, you know, the unionisation of the mass industries, auto, steel, uh, rubber, um, all of that sort of stuff in the 1930s. One of the great stories of, you know, workers organising anywhere, really. The talk that I'm doing is like a... uh, you could say sort of the prequel to that, I suppose. So it's, you know, a bunch of militants in the 1920s in pretty tough circumstances for unions, you know, uh, unions being at a low air, below level of industrial struggle, a whole bunch of people in the labour movement basically saying, well, we're finished, you know, we can't organise these new industries. Um, You know, especially in the United States, the union movement was based on these very narrow sort of craft unions, you know, where the workers would have a 
indispensable skill that was very hard for the boss to replace. Um, you can find a lot of commentary in the US labour movement in the 1920s, which isn't a million miles from some of the stuff that gets talked about now in terms of, oh, look, these new sorts of industries, they're much tougher to organise than the old industries. Um, you know, it's really difficult. You know, maybe we can't do it and so on. Um, the Trade Union Educational League is basically a group of people saying, well, look, no matter how tough the circumstances are, we have to try to do something to build up, um, you know, class struggle unionism in a whole series of industries, which is what they did and basically laid the foundations for, uh, you know, the success of the organising drives in the early 1930s. So could you explain a bit more how they connected with the sit-down strikes that you were talking about? One of the, um, like, I've got a couple of, different sort of case studies in um, my talk. One of them is on the um, Auto Workers Union, which was this, you know, actually really tiny and almost irrelevant union in the 1920s um, in the United States, despite, like, by 1924, autos was actually the biggest industry in the United States, but it was barely unionised. There were just some tiny little slivers amongst some of the skilled trades in a few of the plants, um, and the rest was just this total, um, you know, non-union uh, mess and which a lot of people considered to be unorganisable. Um, it was actually communist militants, other militants as well. You know, there was a fairly large left in the United States at the time, but the Communist Party um, especially put a lot of effort into the auto industry. Um, you know, they weren't in a position, a tiny organisation, you know, spread across this vast industry. They weren't in a position to lead all these strikes. But when one broke out, they could go down to the picket line and say, well, look, this is what we can do for you. We can make some connections. We can raise some money to support you. We've got some ideas about strategy. We think your strike should be run by daily mass meetings. Um, we think you need a very large and representative strike committee, you know, to try to involve the maximum number of people in that strike. Um, and so, over, so what mm. you're saying is that you've got a kindling. The people who have yep. had the fire, uh, the fire they've uh, said we, this is, uh, there's a problem here. Maybe was it about wages or conditions, generally speaking? Generally conditions, yeah. Conditions. The, the auto at the time was, um, well, uh, Henry, well he Henry, Ford, that, yes. Henry Ford pioneered his $5 a day wage, which was considered a, a decent wage at the time for a, a so-called unskilled worker. But the conditions were pretty atrocious. There was always speed up going on. Uh, there was always, you know, positions being cut out of the line. Um, there was a, you know... A system of company spying and company tyranny, basically, as soon as you mentioned the word union, you'd find yourself uh, sacked or a whole lot worse. Um, so the, the communists, like they had a whole variety of ways of working. One was through the auto workers union. One was through uh, shop bulletins, like workshop bulletins, um, which they became, um, you know, sort of famous for uh, in the 1920s. The Ford worker had a circulation in the tens of thousands and was, um, you know, it wouldn't be the workers themselves. Um, because that would invite victimisation if you were just walking around the shop floor giving out a leaflet. But they would get other people yeah, in the Communist Party or connected to the Communist Party to sell them at the shop gate. Um, you know, basically, uh, four, you know, these four-page roughly roneoed um, uh, newsletters sold for one cent. Um, and so it was using techniques like that that they'd slowly build up a network of people that um, in the end proved quite effective in the early 30s. And what was the politics of the Communist Party in America at the time? Well, it's, it was a mess. It was, and that's a whole other story. I'm sort of battling exactly how to tell that. Um, the um, Look, in a way, the story of the Trade Union Educational League is a story of a whole generation of worker militants that came from 
um, that grew up in the Socialist Party. People might have heard of Eugene Debs, the great socialist uh, figure who got uh, nearly a, a million votes uh, for president in, I think it was 19, 1910 or 1912, the election around there. This is Don't you realise that, don't you think that this, uh, the, the uh, temptation to say that there is so many elements that reflect what's going on right at this moment? Because, I mean, we have industries that are just big, uh, that are about to balloon into major... Uh, um, importance, which don't have not didn't exist ten years ago. Uh, America is now pondering putting in someone in the Democratic uh, candidacy who has, well, you wouldn't say with socialists. They like to say, socialist. but he says that he's a socialist. Yeah, well, whatever, whatever. It's well, it is pretty amazing the fact that you know. And what, people are yeah. also saying that casualised workforce. Oh, we can't unionise these people. We can't represent them. And then there's also the thing, uh, you know, the basic wage thing. A lot of those actions were actually uh, supported and couldn't possibly have happened without the support of a wider group of people helping them to, uh, you know, deal with the incredible backlash when workers stand there and say, look, we've had enough. Yeah, I mean, there's elements in, in common that, that one of the big differences is the weakness of the organised left now compared to 100 years ago. Oh, tell us about that. Well, the, the, like uh, uh, that generation that, that was active in the Trade Union Educational League came through the Socialist Party. Um, a lot of them uh, split from the Socialist Party basically because of, you know, this is all just reformist politics. A lot of them joined the uh, Industrial Workers of the World, the revolutionary, you know, crew that said we should, you know, transform our unions, have one big union, do away with all these craft divisions and so on. And, and, and then in, from, a, in mm. amongst that must have been the murder of uh, the anarchists in Europe. There was, well, one of the things that the Communist Party did along with the Trade Union Educational League was a, a group called International Labour Defence. Um, so at the time there were literally hundreds of... Um, militants in the United States who were in jail as a result of industrial activities. So they would, you know, raise money to give to the families of these people, uh, write letters and so on. And that was part of what they did to hold a network of militants together in some practical activity that had, you know, it was sort of small enough to do, but big enough to be meaningful, if that makes sense. Wasn't um, Eugene Debs in jail at the time that he got a million votes? Is that Oh, right? God. I, I, someone asked me that last night, and I'm, I'm thinking, sure. yeah, he, I'm pretty sure he was jailed in the, in the last days of World War I for a couple of years, actually, for oh. doing a speech. Um, he was an old man at the time. Uh, for making a speech basically saying that he would never fight under the national flag of the United States. Um, Eugene Debs was his charismatic figure. The actual Socialist Party was, you know, a little bit of a different creature. Like There was a lot of um, machine operators, I suppose, that would move into a local Socialist Party and trade off the, the really revolutionary and charismatic figure of Eugene Debs to build up their own political machine for rather more sordid reasons. So a lot of people split with that came into the Industrial Workers of the World, uh, split from that, um, well, um, either before or during World War One, and from there got into the Communist Party. Now, the Communist Party itself was, um, you know, a pretty complicated formation, I suppose you could say. Um, and in hindsight, you sort of look back on a lot of their factional struggles and you say, oh, jeez, you know, that doesn't look too good. But these are people trying to make sense of a, of a very new political and industrial situation in the 1920s. Um, 
a lot of their membership was from the foreign language federations of the Socialist Party. So, like at one stage in the 20s, of the American Communist Party had about 6,000 members. 45% of them were Lithuanian. You know, you have these small language federations, which were really the, the heart and soul of the Communist Party through the 20s. If it wasn't for those foreign language federations, the Communist Party wouldn't have gone on to play any sort of a role. But it did mean that the party was very much... Um, well, sort of quarantined to these immigrant communities and had quite a hard time in some circumstances breaking out of them uh, to try to, um, you know, appeal across those divisions to the working class, to broader layers of the working class. So big challenge as a, you know, for a political organisation to get straight on what you're doing um, and to put it into practice in those circumstances. Um, so how did they? I mean, I know that you've already been describing some of the things that they, methods that they came up with. Uh how did they break out? Was it was it more that their enemies feared them greater than their actual potential, or what? Uh, I think that well, there was an element of that. Like you talk about red scares, and like the years straight after the Russian Revolution, um, the American ruling class. It wasn't just this theoretical thing that oh, we could lose a lot. Like she was that actually, yeah, we, we could lose that, a lot. <laughs> yeah, it was a very uh, you know what they would term some, you know, very clear and, and present danger, I suppose, for the American ruling class and their allies in the trade union movement. So... Oh, and also their investments and assets in that part of the country, in the world. Yeah, yeah. So... They had plans. The, they had plans for the gas and oil in... Uh, Russia. In in Russia. I mean, I, I've, I've read uh, Irene uh, Brozanovsky, or whatever her name is, uh, book, uh, David Golding, and uh, that is uh, about a, 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 it's a case study of a particular person who is a financier in that period, in exactly that period. And the big scam or the big financial uh, coup that was supposed to happen all centred around getting American money into an investment company that was going to uh, um, develop the oil and gas fields in Russia. Okay. After the revolution, in fact. Okay, I, I don't know that story. No, yeah, but it's fascinating. Yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Like this, yeah. Is, it's been it's been a bit of an education for me. Partly just the scale of um, the class struggle in the United States. I'm thinking, oh, I should say something about the coal miners. And that, whoa, you know, like our big coal strikes is like ten thousand people in 1928. You know, sixteen months, twenty three thousand people. In the United States, it's like 600 and something thousand people walk out on strike. And like just the scale of the industry makes it hard to has made it hard for me to get a handle on. And then there's all of these complexities of history involving um, United States, uh, you know, both business and also from the left side, you know, sort of getting involved in Russian politics in one way or another. So in a way, looking back on it, it's like I sometimes find it amazing that these people managed to make any history at all, but they did in really tough circumstances. Well, that's the nature of history. It doesn't matter what happens. It happened. You know, like <laughs> I know, you f- it feels incredible that they can basically sort of erase from history. You know, strikes of six hundred thousand people. It's yeah. Well, some of the central figures in the trade union educational league, William Z. Foster, was one of the most famous uh, working class militants and working class organisers of of that generation. You know, Socialist Party, uh, Industrial Workers of the World. He was the central organiser of the National Steel Strike. Like steel at the time in nineteen nineteen, the central industry of the American. Um, you know, of well, yeah, the central industry in America in a lot of ways, half a million workers, 
And William Z. Foster says, give me 100 organisers and give me three months, we'll get it organised. What a man. And, uh, and the, a the American Federation of Labor says, oh, look, we'll give you six organisers, OK? And with that, um, this he, he basically gets all of the steel industry around Chicago organised and then rustles up some more organisers to advance into Pennsylvania, which was the real centre of the thing. tells you something about, something about the leadership of these organisations. No yeah. vision, man. No well, vision. yeah, and one of the things, like, if there's one of, the, there's a few sort of recurring themes in the history of the trade union educational league and the people that went through it, and one of them is this idea of the the organising drive. I was thinking about that. Like, how many times have you heard an Australian union talk about an an organising drive? I've never been part of an organising drive. And like, there's, you know, there's a a few unions doing, you know, don't want to pay out or anything. Like, there's a bunch of unions doing some really creditable work. Um, I'm pretty impressed with what I've heard about the National Union of Workers and their work with farm workers, especially like an area which has been a total void for unions for, you know, a couple of generations, really. Um, And, you know, that to me seems the closest that we've got of a union saying, look, we just have to unionise this entire sector and, you know, we'll have a systematic plan of doing it. Um, this sort of approach a was... A little bit like the little bit engine. I think I can. I think I can. Well, there's a part to it. Part of the thing with an organising drive, the way that um, the Trade Union Educational League did, though, was to realise an industry like steel or, you know, like any national industry is very, very, very Vulnerable. difficult. Well, very difficult to organise just plant by plant or town by tan- town. You have to sort of do the whole lot or not at all. And once you have... A, a, enough resources and credibility to say that's it we're on this big organizing drive we will you know the role of the full-time organizers and the paid organizers the union officials and so on is to involve the workers themselves in that organizing drive in the practical work of that Um, and using that sort of approach you can have um, um, you know a very dramatic organising drive that sweeps through an industry like you know steel basically got organised in a year um and it was a problem that it was a year rather than three months because you know the uh employees could give some concessions sack militants and so on but like that approach of saying let's devise a systematic plan and go out and actually put it into effect i think we could definitely learn something from that i mean shivers as a as a movement um you know we had a 12-month period ending in August last year, where we lost 9% of our membership on the official figures. Mm. On that sort of a rate, you know, as a, you know, we're not, we're not going to be out of business in another decade because there's a lot of people that will fight to save our unions as class struggle organisations, but that's the trajectory that we're on. And I oh, see... And especially hmm. as we're in a, in a period of history where workers' rights are being actively removed and the working class are being actively attacked. Hmm. I wonder, how did they did they just announce that they were going to do an industry wide organisational drive and was that partly how they got the rank and file involved and put together a credible um, sort of plan well alternative a, a credible plan a credible alternative and credible forces to put that plan into effect I suppose was part of it so because people have uh, to choose to throw their lot in yeah so because you've got the the American Federation of Labor you know before the great organizing drive of the 30s like the, you've got these very very narrow little craft unions um, you know I came across one union called the beef luggers union. You wow. Know? We don't like lamb. We don't like pork. We only like beef. You know, it's like for crying out loud, you know, like how narrow can you get? And that wasn't 
atypical, you know. Um, what uh, what the Trade Union Education League, William Z. Foster and, and all of them tried to do, or actually did do in a series of circumstances, was assemble all of the locals, like all of those unions that had these little slivers of membership, corral them into a committee and then say, okay, we will enrol people into this general union. So we've got all of the, the backing of all of the unions in the industry. You know, we're not going to have this petty squabbling anymore. Uh, we're not going to have this division between the skilled trades and the so-called unskilled workers um, and just get going on that basis. So they, 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 there yeah. was a structural change, but also uh, they by doing that, they changed the question that all the people were looking at. So when they, if you're focusing on little squabbles, that's you put all your as much energy into little squabbles as you do into winning the war. Well, yeah, and that you know, the, <laughs> there can be long histories of um, you know particular unions, you know, in that case, fighting each other over jurisdiction and so on. Now, in the end, like this problem kept it. This is less of less of a problem in in Australia. You know, we have many problems in our, in our union, union movement, but in the not craft unions. No. Yeah, craft unionism is not one of the problems that we have to deal with. So, so that's one of the historical kind of problems. Yeah. So the general approach of ooh, let's have an organising drive and what would that look like? I'll, I'll you know, I just I love that. Um, so that's one of the things that we can sort of pull out of what people have learned in the twenties done in the 20s, I suppose. The exact application today, well, you know, that's for us to work out, but I think the approach is a pretty decent one. Mm. If you're wondering who you're listening to, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim and we're talking to Jerome's... Jerome... 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 Jerome Small, (laughs) who is going to give a talk at the upcoming uh, uh, Marxist conference, which is uh, happening over the Easter period. It's fascinating to go back into uh, any type of history. And as you were saying, Kim, the way it's possible for the victors to erase the uh, great warriors of uh, past labour history. Yeah. Well, I'm really looking... It's been great for me to... Um, you know, do a bit of research for the talk. I'm really looking forward to, um, you know, shaking some of those skeletons around, I suppose, and, and you know, yeah, just learning from some of these, you know, incredible experiences, um, you know, and achievements of, of militants in the past. Maybe I should just sort of throw in, like, so that that is one of the more historical sessions in the Organising Workers stream. There's a few other historical talks. There's one on, um, uh, you know, one of the well, the strike that rewrote the rules in terms of logistics strikes, I suppose, um, the Minneapolis Teamster strike of 1934 that absolutely transformed the way that, uh, you know, Teamster unions, transport unions and warehouse unions worked across the United States. Um, so there's that one. Uh, Liz Ross is doing a session on uh, 30 years since the deregistration of the Builders Labourers Federation. Um, and I've talked to Liz uh, a little bit about that. Like that will be a fabulous um, session celebrating that, you know, the struggle of those workers that, you know, actually won a lot of the decent conditions that are now under such serious attack from the uh, the Liberals and so on. Um, so that one's on Saturday. There's a, a, a session looking at the history of every different Royal Commission, um, which has happened into the trade union movement and the construction unions and so on. Um, there's nothing new under the sun, but it's good to learn some of those lessons, I suppose. And then we've got a bunch of sessions which are a bit more contemporary looking at, um, you know, they're fairly short sessions and not, not going to be anything, um, you know, 
uh, very grand or whatever, but, you know, just to have a bunch of health workers in a room, a bunch of construction workers in a room saying, this is what's happening in our industry. Um, you know, here's a few aspects of this experience. Here's, here's a, you know, a direction in which to head, I suppose. Um, we've got a few sessions like that. We've had a few um, experiences in the last year, um, you know, attempting to organise uh, young hospitality, young workers in hospitality and retail. So we've got a session um, talking about some of those experiences as well. And uh, we've got uh, a session involving organisers and activists from the National Union of Workers talking about their farm worker campaign. Um, that's on Saturday as well. So Live issues. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, like yeah, with the penalty the rates and the attacks on the CFMEU. Yeah, so there's, um, I think it's, well, anyway, I guess I'm biased, but I think it's a pretty reasonable mix of some of the more historical talks like what I'm doing and then trying to apply some of those lessons in the here and now without thinking we can come up with the grand plan, but, you know, we can chuck a few de- a few ideas around and talk about approaches. Well, this is the biggest uh, festival of ideas, left ideas, in uh, the uh, Southern Hemisphere, isn't it? Yeah, I'm always we might as well talking know. about the southern hemisphere. We might as well shoot <laughs> for the stars. Yeah, certainly in Australia, it's the it's the biggest uh, left wing conference to happen every year in Australia, um, and has been for it's you know built up quite a lot over the last uh, four or five years, I suppose. So, um, but it yeah. certainly has a huge, uh, wonderful vibe when you go to the last years was uh, the new this new venue that you've got. Uh, where you've got most of the things happening down near the VCA. That's right, yeah. So the opening night is up at Melbourne Uni Student Union. Uh, that's on the Thursday night um, before Good Friday. And then all of Good Friday, Easter Saturday, and all of Easter Sunday, we're down at the Victorian College of the Arts, um, just over the bridge there. Um, so, yeah, whether it's, you know, radical movies, uh, some radical art, photo exhibitions, um, you know, People like Gary Foley, uh, our visitor, um, Marla um, Nkosi, who is from uh, Soweto, was part of the Soweto Uprising in 1976. Um, You know, you have a lot of people that have made a bunch of history that have really shaken regimes around. So just, you know, having all of them and all of that experience and, as as you say, you know, the atmosphere created by 800, 900, 1,000 um, left-wingers all running around, co-conspiring, you know, having controversies, you know, all of that sort of stuff. But it's it's fantastic to hear people who, uh, from their own mouths, about uh, the fights that they've fought, uh, not filtered through uh, mainstream media. It's absolutely essential to to get what people actually felt and and, uh, experienced. Yeah, and sometimes you can grab them over lunch, which is... Fun. Even better. <laughs> thanks for coming in. Well, thanks for having us. me. Yeah, cheers, and um, I'll see you both there. I, I hope, and hopefully, yes. see a lot of <laughs> listeners there as well. So, yeah, a couple of weekends time. Cool. Three CR Breakfast Radio meets the people. So come along to Tricia's Sustainable Breakfast Series. Broadcast live from Friends of the Earth Food Co-op. Join us for breakfast tasties at Friends of the Earth 312 Smith Street, Collingwood or tune in to 3CR to hear what people are doing in the area of sustainability. From Tuesday, March the 15th to Friday, March the 18th. Starts at 7am, goes through to 8.30am. Come down, watch a live show. Every show will have a musician and it's a fantastic initiative by 3CR and Friends of the Earth. Supported by Yarra Council.
illustrated book by Alina and Bruce MacDonald stars our beloved comrade Bill Della as the protagonist in a journey that stems from Ballarat to Humpty Doo and features all the lefty issues that were dear to Bill's big heart. 3CR has a few precious copies of this beautiful book for sale for $20 plus $5 postage. All proceeds will go to the Solidarity Breakfast Program's Radiothon Fund. You can buy it online at the 3CR shop. Go to the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au, or pick up your copy at the station. Well, I don't want to insult Jerem because um, I enjoyed that conversation, but one of our fans ring, rang up, old Wolfie. He says that uh, actually when uh, he, that uh, Jerem sounded like Bob Pork and the only reason, oh. how insulting, isn't it? That's an insult of, of grand order. It is. But what, what he actually was saying was that uh, when there was a whole lot of little unions, then they were able to, uh, there were six unions down on the wharf and that uh, when one went on strike, uh, as they were coming out of the strike, the other one would get on, uh, would go on strike, then the next one, and then, so that they were able to tag team. So he saw sees that as being a, a true piece of radicalism in the making. But it's I don't think that. Di- yeah. yeah, I think it's completely different because I wouldn't say that necessarily one big union is definitely. I think that's been, well, in my opinion, proved not to be a successful well, way of. In particular, successful way of organising. But I think the craft unions were something historically different and particular to the time. Yeah, exactly. And I don't think that's – they were never really on the wharves being – No, it's a a division of labour. What you're doing is you're saying that uh, we're better than you because we've got these skills and we can keep a stable existence and you're the riffraff. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's how it works. I mean, that's how the hu- human mind works because you know we like to feel that uh, um, we're s- stable and protected. Mm. We're better. Well, I think it it's was they're really a hangover from a point where capitalism wasn't as massive and as um, on such a massive scale as it is now. Yeah, exactly. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim and thanks very much for the uh, phone call in and uh, I hope I've represented you, your opinion, uh, clearly. Uh, so we appreciate it when people ring in and tell us what it is that uh, has been provoked by the conversations that we have on Solidarity Breakfast here on 3CR. Absolutely. Yeah, 855 AM on your dial and also streaming, also podcasts later in the week. Uh, we've uh, we touched on something that uh, in that conversation about uh, industries uh, that are um, acro- uh, big industries that uh, if you their idea was that if you're going to instead of organising the individual parts you need to actually go for the king hit and uh, our next sequence for the show is a, uh, an interview with. Uh, Graham Willett from Melbourne University. Now, you'd be particularly interested in this, Kim, because you actually work there. Yes. Um, so some of the things that they're talking about with the plan, the very sketchy plan they've put out, the flexible academic program are quite worrying, as you'll hear, but things about getting rid of live lectures, um, bigger class sizes, going to quarterly um, semesters basically to make more money, but I'm sure we'll hear, hear about all these very depressing 
plans that they have? Well, the thing about it is, is and the reason why I've talked about it in terms of a big industry, uh, education is a big industry in Australia. And uh, we, the universities, as you're probably aware, are supposed to be uh, places that generate uh, clear uh, direction and thought and uh, uh, research that uh, students are well educated for their future and the future of the country, that sort of thing. Uh, but uh, there has been a lot of battles going on for a number of decades now. It's becoming quite long, uh, where the whole shape and meaning of universities have changed. It really has changed from, a, it's probably quite a long time since it was like this, but it, universities used to be run by collegially, so you would have professors who would sort of run the university. Now it's very much they've changed it to the structure where you have management and workers. So in lots of ways, university workers have much... Well, they are workers now. They've been proletarianised in lots of ways. And I think that you're saying it is a massive industry. And at the moment, it's all covered by the NTU, whether you're academic staff or whether you're support admin staff. And I think that's one thing they're trying to attack is to separate those two. The other issue, of course, is that it's illegal to patent bargain. Uh, in the, so, of course, even though these industries, the, this industry is uh, deeply intertwined, uh, the uh, individual campuses have to fight for their wages and conditions. And uh, we've reported on a variety, I mean, just a couple of weeks ago, RMIT, uh, what they call vocational educators, as opposed to TAFE uh, teachers, because now vocational education educators teach students who can then be accredited for you know uh, two years of higher education, so it's changed and muddied the waters. But it doesn't mean reflecting their salaries of or no, we should call it wages because they're all casual. That's the other yes. thing. This huge level of casualization. It's about fifty percent. Yeah, well, it's actually more. It's actually more over. Than. In some of them, it's uh, sixty, or and uh, the difference between a research institution and a educating institution has to be understood. But what's going on is that the public still have this old notion of what a university is supposed to do, and uh, in the recent attacks on the CSIRO. Uh, which is also supposed to be a brains trust in people's minds. That's what it is. It's a brains trust. But in actual fact, these brains trusts are now supposed to purely be commercial enterprises. I saw some of the headlines about CSIRO. Their international reputation has been trashed by these cuts. It's well, this is this this is a big issue, and this is why we're we're picking it up, and this is why we had a yarn with. Uh, Graham Willett about what's the, this five-year plan and the direct potential directions for Melbourne University. Uh, it's it's uh, it's the way universities are being changed from being brains trust into corporations. Corporations. So it's you know let's just we just wanted to uh, bring it to your attention. Now, you're the uh, NTU representative at uh, Melbourne University, correct? I'm Vice President Academic on the branch committee, yes. Oh, great. Okay, so uh, we were hearing some information about uh, the new five-year plan for uh, Melbourne University, and apparently that would might include uh, no live lectures anymore. 
it's it's really hard to tell what they've got in mind. We know they've been working on this in secrecy for at least some months. Uh, it's called the Flexible Academic Program, and it's obviously part of a series of changes that they've been working on over the years. Um, some of the more uh, worst-case scenarios are probably not going to come true, but there are certainly some pretty unpleasant suggestions in there. So what um, are the worst-case scenarios? Uh, the kind of things we see sort of posted around the place, the idea of you know maybe getting rid of all lectures, it's, just, it's not at all clear that they're really thinking of that. Um, there would always be some kind of lecturing system in place. The size of the ca casualisation, which has been a, a problem for well over a decade, would probably accelerate. They're talking about multiple semesters, so instead of just having two plus summer, they might have a lot more, which would be fine in some ways and would use the university's facilities more effectively. But on the other hand, the danger is that they'll just expect people to work through the whole year as well as doing research and engagement. So teaching would take more and more time, but there'd be the expectation that they would continue to expect people to uh, meet all their other obligations. Now, uh, if uh, the, there were to be uh, no live lectures, what sort of uh, effect would that have on the formal uh, basic notion of what a university is, which is our universities are generally based on a notion of a Socratic sort of arrangement where students can argue the point and discuss issues with uh, a lecturer or a person of note. Is that correct? Yeah, it certainly used to be. I mean, part of the problem that the university have and that all of us has is a kind of massification of university education. You know, a tiny little elite who used to be educated could do that. You might have 10 or 15 people in a lecture. Nowadays, you have literally hundreds in some lectures but even the tutorials where people are students only to be able to get together and debate the issues are often 10, 20, sometimes 30, 40 people. So they, the, the problem is that they're working with this kind of model of, of what a university should be, but they haven't really managed to adapt it to changing circumstances, and that's their problem. Well, one of the things is that despite the fact that uh, they've increased the amount of students... The, and they've casualised the staff, that actually students still want, and they're paying for this because it's all fee-paying now, they expect to be able to actually speak to a real live person about uh, help with their work. Isn't that correct? That's right. So the lecturers, have, the lecturers have stopped doing that because they're so big. You can't have a real discussion in a room of 150 people. The tutorials were meant to make up for that, you know, the small group gatherings. Um, but they're getting bigger and bigger. The university is basically trying to save money to sort of process as many students as it can. And while some students are adapting to that and just have lowered their expectations, we know that lots of students are really discontented with the, with the university experience. And this would certainly make it worse both for teaching staff but also for the students. Well, there's a couple of issues there, isn't there? Um, one, one of course, is that uh, the old idea that uh, if you want something to be changed, uh, even if it's an unpalatable change, you make a system not work. So by over-filling uh, the universities as they stand, the old system can't be sustained. 
That's right. I mean, once you bring in, you know, hundreds of thousands of students into the university system, a system that was based on having a few thousand in eight universities, now we have 38 universities, hundreds of thousands of students, tens of thousands of staff, um, all based on a model that simply isn't working anymore. But then faced with that problem, the universities, all of them, and this is especially true at Melbourne University, their solution is always to sort of take away the kind of the governing group and sit quietly together and think about what they might do. Which, considering Melbourne has you know seven thousand staff, all of whom are pretty smart and know how their jobs work, it's a ridiculous way to approach the change that's needed. To assume that this tiny little group at the top can can come up with a a good system. Now, does that mean that Melbourne University is a failing business? Well, in their terms, it's not. You know, they manage to kind of raise their status. It makes quite a lot of profit. Um, but I think there's a sense that the, it's failing to deliver good educational outcomes. I mean, one example in this kind of... We've got some of the documents that have kind of fallen off the back of the truck, so we have some idea of what they're doing. And one of the problems that they themselves acknowledge is that what they call um, large undergraduate classes... Um, in some of those disciplines like sort of commerce and the sciences, they're really just not a good way to teach. And other faculties have started following suit. So the arts, which tends to have smaller numbers of students, um, are following towards the idea of big general subjects that anybody can teach. Um, and it's really that the university themselves has acknowledged that this is a problem in terms of quality of learning that's going on. So a process of dumbing down of the university experience. Well, that's the effect of it, I think. Um, you know, people, academics especially, are kind of struggling to, to do, make the best of it. Students are struggling to get the most out of it. But it's, uh, it's clearly not working from, from the university's point of view. They acknowledge that these very large classes aren't good educational uh, processes. Oh, that's really interesting. I've just been to a... Uh, a business forum today and uh, this person was chirping on about the uh, wonderful advantages of being in Victoria for this large company because of the high calibre of students uh, or staff that are coming out of uh, our high standard tertiary education uh, institutions. Okay, yep. Um, Is it just a pretend world we're living in? Who knows what this person was talking about? And it's certainly not the case that universities aren't producing good people. It's just that they're producing them under ever less satisfactory uh, processes. And, and, and by their own admission in various parts of the university, uh, in the very large classes, for example, that's just not working. So depending on particular disciplines, um, I think, and particular kinds of students and particular universities... Um, I think that, that there are real problems. The university at Melbourne, for example, is acknowledging that it's got problems, but it doesn't... Well, its solution is to sort of, you know, get a tiny little group of people to think hard and hope that they can come up with a good idea. Well, the um, they advertise a lot. Melbourne University advertises itself a lot. It talks about building a dream, and it also talks about it uh, being num- the number one university uh, 
but it's actually the number one research university, not the number one educational university, correct? Uh, it's yes, it's certainly in Australia. <laughs> yeah, we're talking about Australia. It's yeah. A, yeah, yeah, yeah. So in terms of Australian uh, status, it, it does very well, but it does, as, as I think you're suggesting, it comes down to what's being measured, and of part of the problem is it constantly has to be measured and counted. So research is easy, you know, you look at the kind of publications and you give these kind of quality standards to particular publications. In relation to teaching, I mean, mostly it's asking students about their experience, um, which, you know, is important, but it's not the only way to think about education uh, and its value to individuals and to communities. Well, I'm, because I'm, I'm sure that most people think that university, they don't think of them as research institutions first. They actually think of them as educational institutions. I'm pretty sure that's the case. So if uh, the core business, which is to educate people, is being run into the ground, what's left for universities? Are they just going to be private institutions? Because, I mean, basically the issue is that these universities, Melbourne University in particular, is the result of public monies, isn't it? That's right. Um, And as part of the general shift in the broader culture, universities have become much more functional. You know, they're now meant to produce good quality workers rather than rounded, educated citizens, for example, which is, which is the old model. Uh, and that has started, I think, to, to take or to, to grip the imagination, not just of university governance, but also the staff, and I think increasingly the students. There's a sense that, you know, they want to get their degree done, they want to get in, they want to get out, they spend less time on their subjects and so on. The, the, the place itself is starting to undermine those old values of, of what education is and should be and why it has a social value that society should pay for rather than just an individual value. You say that uh, you've got a copy of what their ideas are, that, you know, not through any formal means. When are you guys going to, the staff going to, and the union actually going to be told? Uh, what their plans are? Well, amongst the, the documents, which are very kind of partial, we've got bits and pieces, we've got some documents but not others, as, as far as we can tell. One of them is the sort of timelines. They seem to be intending, they started last year sometime, they seem to be intending by the middle of this year to start telling people or what they call consultation, which is really a process of they make the decisions, they tell people what's going to happen, they ask for feedback this is their idea of consultation, uh, then they may or may not, usually not, make changes to their model. That's all meant to be starting from the look of it in the middle of the year, although we know from the documents there's some concern about whether it's too big. You know, this kind of big bang approach might fall over, uh, and so there's concerns that maybe they need to stagger the process some more. But part of the problem is we don't know. You know, we've got these bits and pieces... Uh, we've got these documents, we haven't got others, we don't really know what's happened since these documents were produced. This idea that they can they can do this process in secrecy um, is, is ridiculous in itself and, and very frustrating for those of us who think, um, you know, who take the university seriously and want to participate in making it a better place. It's interesting because uh, people see university as a brains trust and I guess as people who work there, there's a 
uh, I mean, you're you're a specialist in your field, so uh, it's difficult to uh, find other types of work that are commensurate with your skills. Uh, and also, because it's a university, one would think that you feel that you contribute a uh, in a way that uh, keeps it alive as a, a being almost. Uh, but the approach is now uh, that it's headed by bean counters that, uh, uh, and this new idea that, uh, well, not new so much, but this idea that everything, which is being reflected in what's happened to the CSIRO, that everything has to have a commercial outcome. Yes, that's right. And it's, it's, it's been going on for a long time uh, and it's now become the driving force. The university's organised in order to do that so they don't start from sort of broad up social values or the role of education in a, in a modern society. They start from what can be counted and how cheaply can we do it without completely wrecking the education system and completely trashing themselves. But some of those um, bigger, broader aims have tended to be forgotten and left behind. CSIRO is a really good example, uh, and it's a very visible public one as well. Uh, but it is going on at the universities, and uh, those of us inside the universities... Uh, are aware of the problems. And, and just occasionally, as with documents like this, we get an insight into the thinking that's driving their um, approach to these questions. Is there any accountability for these people who are making these decisions? No, no, no. They're a completely self-perpetuating oligarchy. You know, the, the university is run by a council which appoints its own members or occasionally has, you know, representatives for governments and other bodies. The staff... Uh, and the students have almost no control over what happens to them. Uh, and in that sense, they are uh, very kind of undemocratic and, and unaccountable. In the end, you know, if the university failed in its goals, uh, which what, they did... They what turned, are the goals? What are the goals? Well, for them, it seems to be about international standing and raising as much money as possible in order to, to carry that through. So it's very hard to see... You know, they can measure their international standing. And so that when they talk about Melbourne University being number 53 in the world or something, they can point to, to, to metrics that, that make that true. And, and if you ask also, them they're the best educator in, in Australia, I don't think they'd be able to tell you. And I guess also it's about transferal of uh, um, uh, research uh, efforts to the university for commercial interests, outside commercial interests. Yes, that's right. The universities, um, you know, they teach, they research, and they engage with the community or serve the community. The, the research is measured, again, it has to be measured in some kind of countable way, and the way they do that is to look at publications. Now, the government actually pays the university per publication, so that's where they get most of their money, but for some of the sciences, for example, they also get it from uh, inventing products and commercialising them and, and, and making money out of them. All oh, right. Okay. And uh, I suppose that uh, at Melbourne University, I'm not sure everybody realises this, but uh, uh, they're preparing or they have uh, decided to sell Union House for an apartment block? There were certainly rumours to that effect last year. Um, again, they might well decide to do that and not tell anybody much. Um, they, it's, you know, it's a pretty ugly and dysfunctional building, but that's not really the point. They, they're well, they could decisions. have made it into a nice building. <laughs> it's uh, it's yeah, it's pretty bad. But 
you know, why wouldn't you build a better one right there? Who knows? Who knows what they're doing? And that's part of the problem. They, they go ahead, they make these what seem to them very good decisions and then they work or they don't work, uh, but they've moved on by that stage. It's not their problem anymore. I am not in love But I'm open to persuasion East or West When you think of community, uh, think of 3CR. When you think of radio, think of 3CR. This is Joan Armour Trading asking you to support your community radio station, 3CR, the only alternative. But with a lover I could hold my hand back A weak solidarity bricky team listener when there's all this talk about an election. We're in election mode. The breathless press gallery experts who know the whole world starts and ends in the bowels of Parliament House excite us. Another opportunity to attach the strings to the puppets who will dance to the caring business class's tune for the next three years or so. But but surely there is a chance they could be wrong. That we may we may never have an election again. <laughs> oh if only because they also keep saying the election date depends on a decision by big supremo Malcolm Tun of Bull. Note those words. Let's repeat them. A decision by Malcolm. So an election is no lay down misere. The great business of government, of course, must go on. And we found our minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, Julie bash up the workers, sitting at a chessboard having a friendly game with the Iranian minister for train killing, Jabad Zarif. I move this investment rook here, he pushed forward as she rubbed her hands at all this lovely, lovely money. And you now move one refugee pawn toward me. Oh, certainly, and here's another pawn, and another. But, but Javed, they're not refugee pawns. They are illegal, no proper papers, queue-jumping, boat people pawns. N now it's your turn to push more investment pieces toward me. Oh, that, that looks like fun. What are you doing? Oh, I'm eliminating the pawns. It is fun, and they deserve it. Now I make this move, this big investment night. Oh, good move. How many more no-proper papers, queue-jumping, illegal boat people, pawns would you like to eliminate? Uh, but in saying that, we must have guarantees. You, you can only take all these pawns if you guarantee to eliminate them nicely because our policy on no-proper papers, queue-jumping, illegal boat people, pawns is driven by our dear baby Jesus principles and compassion. Just recently, by the way, Julie received an award for her contribution to Trublawazi Cuban relations. Can anyone tell us just what that, that contribution was? I, I would have thought she'd be lucky to know where it is. And to celebrate International Women's Day, an arch-conservative Lord Rupert of Wapping Lackey, a so, sorry, objective journalist and occasional caring business class party staffer, wrote a whole book just to say the blame for former big supremo tiny a bit more for the boss's political demise was 100% on the shoulders of another arch-conservative woman. When the thieves, oh sorry, sorry, when arch-conservatives fall out solidarity forever. 
when this critically important contribution to true political literature will hit the throwout tables outside our bookshops can surely be counted in days, if not hours. Who'd buy the crap? We didn't need a book to tell us what we thought of Tiny and Peter. Incidentally and sadly, the author using the term loosely, the author, Dicky Sinker, came from a working class Greek Cypriot family in working class Dubton. Then again, congratulations as it celebrated IWD to Yarra Trans, currently running ads encouraging women to come work for it and celebrated by refusing to allow women workers to attend a conference on the role of women in public transport unless they took a day's annual leave. I'm sure we've noticed increasingly a day that emanated from the gross exploitation of women workers, like our very own Labor Day this weekend, which once upon a time featured union floats and banners and workers and dangerous working class messages marching through the streets of Melbourne, Labor Day captured by the corporate cowboys as Mumba to ensure they keep evil workers with their dated rubbish about class struggle off the streets, all references to evil unions banned. Now, notice that David emanated from the gross exploitation of working women was largely expropriated by the elite yet again. How more women can become big caring employers or highly paid servants of big caring employers grossly exploiting those working women. Although Lord Rupert of Wapping celebrated the day in his usual restrained objective way by featuring on P3 of his Wapping Sin, IWD story, six Olympic women swimmers in their swimsuits. Lord Rupert, whose wealth was built on the sun in England and the truth here, that was its name, not what was in it, would never exploit tits and bums. He's a refined, sophisticated man, indeed an oracle, although maybe he didn't know he was too busy being in true love on his honeymoon. Honeymoon number, oh, I don't know, I've lost count, but, it's, but it is true love. From a great man who, by the day, tells us what's good for us to unsophisticated evil. Yet another evil construction union official was convicted this week for the heinous crime of being an evil union official and worse, swearing at a caring employer. They're, they're so uncouth, these workers, aren't they? And demanding union members be given preference in the lunchroom over good workers exercising their honourable right not to join a union. Speaking of honour, hitting him with a nine grand fine and the union 48 grand, his honour said such thuggery cannot be tolerated, denouncing behaviour designed to bully, intimidate and harass workers into joining the union. The top cop on the beat, Nigel Hedge kissed the bosses and the minister for coaching the workers, Michaela Koch the workers, agreed. We observe the laws we introduced allowing us to bully, intimidate and harass workers sensibly, responsibly, legally, bully, intimidate and harass into not joining the union, a union which has no respect for the laws we make. It's a disgrace, Michaela. They're out of control, Nigel. The very basis of industrial law must be predicated on the right of workers not to join a union. We must protect caring employers from industrial anarchy. 
and no need to remind you, Michaela, that also protects workers from being caught up in illegal, intimidating tactics over insignificant matters like wages and conditions. Matters best left to the caring employers who best know the state of their business, Michaela. Good point, Nigel, good point. As Nigel lays charge after charge against lawless unionists for crimes like swearing and doing their job, we mentioned last week, given his devotion to the law and his loathing of lawlessness, he must be burning the midnight oil preparing cases against that caring employer where another another worker died a couple of weeks ago, against Grillo the workers over that wall which killed those pedestrians, and serious charges against the filthy rich socialite Patricia Ilan, where a 21-year-old electricity apprentice suffered 80% burns to his body when an air conditioner he was working on exploded last week at her Brighton mansion. And the St Kilda Road development where that crane collapsed the other week. Just luck, no one was injured. The second recent event involving a General Crane's crane. Nigel will be working his guts out preparing serious charges against those caring employers except he's kept so busy preparing to charge lazy avaricious workers and evil union officials if they plan to do anything criminal like take action about workers being killed and injured and endangered and especially if they use expletives and or abuse the caring employers. He knows real crime when he sees it. Interesting, the commercial news report I saw I saw on that crane collapse said passers-by were lucky they weren't injured when and just didn't think it worth even mentioning that workers were even luckier, we assume, including the, tra- the crane driver. Well, why give oxygen to evil? Let's balance that with good. This free kills the workers consultant and former True Blue Aussie Institute of Bloated Company Directors wrote a piece attacking proposals to prosecute company directors and bosses if corporate criminals down the line reflected the corporate culture that good, good directors and bosses instigated, encouraged. It also views corporate culture as including good conduct, he wrote which in turn includes acting in the best interests of customers. It is unclear how this fits with the duty of directors to act in the best interests of the company, particularly where these duties conflict. Excellent point. How can directors operate ethically if they have to consider customers, or worse, be held responsible for how lackeys act in their name, carry out their orders? We can understand their distress, especially when they devote their lives to all of us, like this super big duper caring business class leaders gabfest this week, which told us the only reason they want company tax slashed is because it's good for workers. Instead of making claims for crippling higher wages and conditions, evil unions, if they know what's good for them, should be lodging claims demanding a reduction in their caring employers' taxes. Finally, one of the GabFest participants, Alison Watkins of Rubbish, big supremo of coca killer Amakil, Amakil kicked off as a tobacco pusher and has moved into sugar-laden junk food and drink, continuing its commitment to public health, for which Alison is highly regarded as a business person, 
by her peers who recognise profit is profit, no matter where it comes from. Anyway, P3, yesterday's true blue Aussie capitalist review, Alison Proffer's advice for her 23-year-old daughter kicking off her career with price as high as possible waterhouse. Surely, top of the advice list would be, don't let anything Coca Killer Amakil makes anywhere near you. Good morning. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock and you're listening to Fill in the Dots. You know who you're listening to. Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to. You're listening to, yes, Fill in the Dots. 3CR Community Radio, you got it right, you've won a giraffe. Uh, We're at 8.55am, we're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. 3CR has been making trouble since 1976 and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers And let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by Neil Mitchell. Goodness me, that's such a long announcement, but it's great to hear Rod Quantock talk. Uh, It is. (laughs) And you're with Solidarity Breakfast, we're just filling in the dots there. (laughs) Exactly right. And uh, we've we've got someone on the line. Dennis, how are you? We oh, lied. We lied, yeah. I'll just work out what's going on here. That's uh, pretty odd. Hold on. Should I make an announcement? Yeah, you can make doing an that. I was going to make an announcement about the Palm Sunday rally next Sunday for refugees. That's March 20th. So every year. You're listening to Community Radio. 3CR. 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 855 AM. Yeah, there's a Palm Sunday rally for refugees, and it is beginning at the State Library at 2pm. Yeah, good on you. That's uh, fantastic. I know what happened. Somebody inadvertently changed the uh, situation on the dots on the uh, actually it's quite 1950s great big buttons and uh, you'd probably have to be a deluded fool not to know that uh, there was a problem but you know I'm a deluded fool it's very early it's uh, Saturday morning and Dennis how are you? Uh, Good morning comrades I'm very good how are you? (laughs) Good Good. morning thanks for suffering that it's Dennis Roggerkurt on the line and uh, Dennis is a fellow broadcaster at 3CR he's been off in South America for a, a couple of months and he's just returned, and uh, we thought we now that he's fresh, just fresh with all his ideas, and be, being a political animal, he might be able to give us a little bit of a a look into uh, the state of affairs in a couple of the countries that he went to. So let's start off with Bolivia. Excellent, excellent choice, Annie. Well, uh, in Bolivia, the uh, uh, that took place a uh, referendum on on February twi- on February twenty first. The people of Bolivia uh, went to the polls to decide whether t- the current sitting Indigenous Socialist President Evo Morales would be able to stand for a re-election in the year of twenty twenty. Now, under the Bolivian Constitution, a president can only stand for one consecutive uh, uh, term. 
So Evo decided to uh, give, well, decided to let the people decide and uh, see if see if they would like to have him around until the year 2025 or so. Unfortunately, the things did not go so well for Evo or for the the movement towards socialism party, which is uh, which is the, the, the dominant force, the dominant political party in in Bolivia. The uh, referendum was actually lost on a very very uh, narrow uh, margin. The Evo Morales, uh, the, the yes campaign, that's the the campaign to. Uh, uh, to to win to win the re- the re-election only got 48.9 percent, and the no vote uh, managed, uh, scored was like 51.2 if I'm not if I'm not mistaken. So so, so, there very... are, so there's a two party system in uh, Bolivia, or are there other no, no, parties? No, 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 it's a multi party system, but uh, the. <clears throat> uh, the, the dominant party of Bolivia is the movement towards socialism, so as a majority in basically every single level of government. But the opposition is so uh, the, the, the rising opposition in Bolivia is just so divided and so uh, into in all these micro parties that they 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 basically had to line up uh, behind this uh, this say the no campaign or the no force and so sort of one single opposition force and um, campaign against the evil. Yes. So what is next for the socialist movement? Will they propose another candidate? Uh, well, it's, since, yeah, yes, since Evo lost uh, the referendum, they will now have to. They will now have, the, uh, well, both, both Eva Morales and the, the mass uh, socialist party will have to uh, go through the process of selecting a new leader or, or new leadership both for the, pres- uh, for the presidency and for the party in the future, they do have quite a bit of time on their hands, though, as they have uh, uh, they have well, basically they have three years to decide uh, how to how to move uh, forward. But uh, while I was uh, uh, while I was in Bolivia, I, I had a chance to meet with uh, one of the one of these young leaders of the movement towards socialism party. It was a it was actually a young a very, uh, the youngest deputy. Ever elected to the Bolivian Assembly, her name was Valeria, Valeria Silva, only 25 years old actually. Mm. Uh, so, she, and uh, she kind of demonstrated that there was a very strong um, emphasis upon uh, uh, not, 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 just, not just upon training news, but upon, I say, real proper Marxist education of uh, of the uh, uh, within, within the party and the understanding of the of the class struggle. Within Bolivia, the uh, how what's it like in Bolivia at the moment? If as a person who's just living uh, a life there, what, what was your? How did uh, mm-hmm. you find being there? Well, um, unfortunately, I was only I was on I only managed to uh, uh, only had time to uh, travel and uh, stay in La Paz, which is the capital of Bolivia, which is also I believe. Uh, this um, uh, well, the city with the highest altitude, the capital city with the highest altitude altitude in the world. That's well, right. So did you spend a lot of meters. time feeling quite sick? Yeah, no. Well, I chewed some coca leaves and uh, was was uh, right as rain. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but um, uh, what they, what, I think what one must understand is that uh, because Bolivia is such a diverse uh, country geographically and by and well and mostly bio 
biasthetically, that uh, the, the the life in the let's say the life in the cities or the life uh, in cities is quite quite different to the one uh, the life in the in the rural area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what in what what has happened in the last ten years? That the life in the particularly well, the life right across the board for the working people has improved immensely. But especially especially the life of the people in the in the vast rural areas. Um, uh, so as you, as you may, may have seen, so, the, so um, when when you the, say have, it's improved, uh, yes. is that uh, shelter, food, mm-hmm. reliable work, and uh, mm-hmm. education? I would say it's all of those things. But uh, even more importantly, even more importantly, it was actually it was a huge increases in wages. It was the recognition of labour rights. It was uh, you know a movement towards gender equality. That, uh, that has been that has also been quite important. It was a huge investment into uh, a huge investment into housing and uh, housing education and um, a, a health and infrastructure. Up to the point where actually social spending social spending in Bolivia has increased by about well, I think it was uh, social spending spending on all these things that I just mentioned increased by about seven hundred percent before Goodness. this. Uh, so that, that's an increase from the neoliberal uh, years, and that and that that was only possible uh, through the nationalization of the hydrocarbon industry of Bolivia. So Bolivia is quite rich in natural resources, it's, uh, like uh, like Venezuela and like other Latin American countries. Um, so it produces uh, quite a bit of gas, which it exports to Argentina and, and Brazil. And uh, since uh, Evo nationalized uh, the industry and uh, turned all the profits to social spending, uh, believe me, the, the average life of uh, uh, almost, uh, all, from all, all, almost all uh, Bolivians was greatly improved. So it can be done. I wanted to oh, ask, yes. <laughs> yes, well, yeah. it's a kind of um, rhetorical question, well, statement. I was wondering what was the sort of the main issue that you were hearing from the people in the cities what is i suppose the most important issue to them at the moment mm. well well i was um um uh, when i was observing the referendum itself and uh, I, I did i did get a chance to speak to quite a few quite a few people uh mostly i spoke about mostly i did i spoke about uh, the um the referendum, but uh, quite a few people mentioned that uh, number one issue actually being corruption in uh, in in the country, and even Evo Morales himself actually mentioned that this uh, that uh, that uh, certain levels of levels uh, certain level of corruption in um, uh, well in in some of the local government, some of the regional government controlled by his party, and corruption by the. Uh, uh, so a level, so some some corruption within uh, within the movement towards socialism has been dragging down. Has actually been one of the things that has been dragging down the support for himself for the uh, for the socialist project in in Bolivia and for the um, you know for continuing improvement of uh, of, of rights. Uh, and of uh, lives of the working people there, because all, all, almost every single other issue, uh, the government, the Bolivian government, has actually succeeded. So uh, Bolivia has actually emerged as uh, uh, actually with, I would say, ironically or paradoxically, the 
the uh, the fastest growing economy in South America and also one that one of the most redistributive ones so to speak oh how fascinating it, I'm sorry I uh, haven't got Bolivia in my mind is it on has it got a coastline or is it land no no and this is a very very important uh, thank you for mentioning it Annie. it's actually been another very important issue Bolivia does not have a coastline yeah that's what I thought it was so in the but uh, what what has actually happened is that in in the 1860s uh, there was a, uh, yeah, a war uh, during a war with Chile Bolivia was actually cut off from the sea cut off uh, cut off from the sea or, or permanently and has since been a landlocked country and forced to rely upon well, either Peru or Chile to get uh, uh, to get things from the um, uh, Pacific Ocean but the since well, I'd say last uh, decade or so, well, Evo, Evo Morales has been fighting a well, a very tough battle with Chile to allow a well, basically to allow access to the to the Pacific Ocean, to basically have a uh, well, basically uh, ask Chile to carve out a very uh, well, a very a narrow let's say tunnel or a, a channel corridor toward to the ocean, exactly a channel to the ocean, in order to allow in order, in order to allow um, Bolivia to be um, to stop being a landlocked country and actually have access to the sea, like so many other South American countries do, and so that the you know the conflict of the of the 1860s can actually pass away. It's interesting. Uh, I was just feeling, uh, coming from Australia, I just felt really uncomfortable not having a coastline. Mm. <laughs> and mm. you're on, <laughs> you're on three CR and Solidarity Breakfast, and we're having a chat with De- Dennis Rogerkut, who has just come back from South America. Now you've taken us to Chile. You did go to Chile, didn't you? Yes, yes, I did. What's going on there? Um, I. Uh... Once again, I, didn't, I I only managed to spend a week in in Santiago, but I managed I did manage there. Um, I did manage to meet with quite a quite a few comrades from the from the far left movements uh, there. Once again, uh, Chile as well is is experiencing quite a well quite a difficult situation in terms of uh, well in terms of the working class uh, struggle uh, struggle at the moment. Um, Chile actually has. Chile actually has a, well, I would say a, a centre-left government. Let's put it that way, which is a, which is a coalition of the within Chile, it's a coalition of the social, Socialist Party, a, like a Christian Democrat Party, a couple of other sort of left-wing parties, and the Communist Party. Right. Hmm. And the and the president is a woman by the name of Michelle Bachelet. Yep. And her government, her government uh, got into power on the promise of labor reform, education reform, and higher taxes on on the corporate on the corporate uh, sector, and um, a number of other uh, promises. But at the moment, there's there's been there's been very little progress done on any of them. Uh, and within Chile, I met with members of the. I know it's going to sound. I know. I know this. The name of the, the party might sound a little, a little bit bizarre, but uh, bear with me. Uh, uh, the Guevarist left of Chile. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, Esquerda Guevarista de Chile. And they they have they they've uh, just gonna, they've explained to me that with uh, while this uh, well Chile does have a left. Center left or social democratic 
government. It's actually um, uh, the the entrenched uh, uh, economic uh, forces, or the, let's say the the monopolies are so are so powerful with, uh, within Chile um, that it doesn't really it matter doesn't, in terms of expression of power. It's it is mm. extremely it, it is extremely difficult to actually change anything in Chile. I mean, so what are the key industries? What are the key industries? Well, uh, traditionally it's been mining. It's, uh, Chile has been very famous for the yeah. copper mining. It's, uh, it's been, it was uh, back in 1973 is what it, uh, when when Salvador Allende tried to nationalize the, the copper mining industry. It was, was one of the yeah, main triggers saw, for his, Yeah, we we exactly. saw what happened with that. Exactly, exactly. But. <clears throat> Chile itself, it actually, in in last years, has well, I'll tell you, has in some ways separ- has separated itself from the rest of uh, South America by joining the OECD, which is kind of the developed countries um, uh, circle, so uh, so to speak. Um, it has so so it has actually. Um, why did they think that that was ne- why did they think that was necessary to differentiate themselves from other South American countries? I, uh, I think the main the main reason for that is because uh, Chile is, is perhaps the most or one of the most neoliberalized countries in uh. in Latin in Latin America, specifically in uh, in South in South America. Yeah, it, it was sort a of a neoliberal experiment. So I can I can exactly. imagine they'd want to see themselves as aligned with the West. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, and uh, once again, regardless of the of the kind of government that actually is there, but well, one thing also that's important to mention is that uh, uh, the con- the current constitution of Chile was actually written uh, during uh, Pinochet's years in nineteen seventy eight. In nineteen seventy eight, and the constitution and uh, a lot of the uh, and you know, the, the man was very clever to insert a lot of clauses into the constitution that would prevent it changing, it, it, it ever changing. So you would need like the support of the the two thirds of the uh, of the of, uh, of parliament, you know, to uh, uh, pass it through. And unfortunately, the current government doesn't have that, even even though the president want, the president wants to change it. So it's. It, 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 Chile, Chile perhaps. Uh, it's it's a country of of, of some of some wonderful uh, and greatly uh, inspirational you know workers struggle, but it's also a company. Uh, sorry, it's also a country of great contradictions mm. as well. How has the student movement been going? Because in the last few years, mm-hmm. it's been really kicking off. What's it like at the moment? That's correct. That, that is correct. Since. Um, um, since the election of uh, Bachelet's government, I'd say the student movement has actually uh, a, well, I wouldn't say it's died down, but it has it has stopped mobilizing in such in such forces as it was before her. One of the reasons for that is uh, is that uh, Bachelet is actually is that Bachelet promised to um, well basically to introduce tuition free education. Mm. Uh, which she has been in the in the process of doing, um, but um, hasn't oh, and, and, hasn't succeeded entirely. Hasn't, hasn't well hasn't succeeded entirely. That's, pro- that's probably the best way uh, to put it. <laughs> at the same time, though, at the same time, one of the most important student leaders, um, 
Uh, her name is uh, Camila Vallejo, who's also a communist, who, who's from the Communist Party of Chile. Uh, she herself uh, was elected to parliament during the 2013 election, and she has actually joined the cabinet Ooh, of, okay. of, of, Michelle, of, of Michelle Bachelet. So she has actually been within that... Uh, uh, say within the government, within the government on the parliamentary side of things, pushing through. Yeah, so, uh, so this try, is a watching brief through. to see what yeah. it is that will actually happen as a result of this. Exactly, but mm. the student, but the student movement still is, I would, I would say, is still quite, uh, is still quite, quite powerful and is still quite ready to uh, mobilise further. What about and the the last country that you've got some information about is Ecuador. Ecuador, yes, correct. Tell us a little bit about Ecuador. Oh, well, um, as I've come to uh, as I've come to say to a lot of um, <clears throat> a lot of comrades uh, around the world, what I consider Ecuador to be well, I say the, um, say the post child of uh, of uh, of uh, radical social democracy. Um, Ecuador has a uh, Ecuador, Ecuador has, uh, like, like like Bolivian uh, like Bolivia Ecuador has had a a left wing uh, government for the past ten years now. Yep. And um, uh, so in last in last ten years, it has also implemented quite a lot of uh, quite a lot of excellent reforms towards redistributing the natural wealth of of Ecuador. Ecuador, like Venezuela, uh, produces. Um, a significant amount of petroleum, and while uh, except uh, except that unlike Venezuela, uh, the petroleum industry in Ecuador remains in private hands. But uh, on the other hand, the super profits tax—that's probably the best way I can put it—is ninety percent in Ecuador. Oh, so, there you go. Yes. Yeah, so also specifically natural resources tax. So basically, uh, all the oil and all the oil and mineral companies get taxed ninety percent, uh, and all that money goes to the the what what, what uh, in Ecuador is called the sovereign wealth fund, where basically, where basically they use it to finance social spending. And uh, did you see and, did you see uh, conspicuous uh, examples of uh, the um, Money being shared amongst uh, the people in general, this in terms yes. of social infrastructure. Yes, I think that in Ecuador the uh, the way the way that the social spending has been done has actually I would say I would say it's been done through three main ways. Number one, uh, when you know well, basically, basically when you arrive to Ecuador and when you uh, well get in the taxi and start driving towards. Uh, so the one thing you notice immediately is that it kind of feels like you're driving from Tola Marine. So the, <laughs> the the roads the roads are in excellent condition in in, in Ecuador, right? Uh, and of course, toll free. There are no there are absolutely no private roads of any kind anywhere in Ecuador. Hmm. Um, so investment in infrastructure has been one of the one of the one of the, one of the big things in Ecuador. The president, the the, the left wing government, they recognise that. Um, secondly, um, there's been a huge investment into, um, or there's been there's been a lot of money put into, uh, uh, well, what, in in Ecuador they call it the the uh, sorry, 
a huge amount of money has been put towards all these, uh, well, I'm not sure how to call them, say, uh, savings or finance funds, or, or, or basically, or public banking. So basically, where oh, people right. can take out loans, mm. very, well, basically at almost no interest, yeah. in order to, well, in order to finance either, either their, either their, their home or, you know, whatever, yeah. whatever they need for the house or, you know, anything yeah, else. And of course, of course, tuition has been uh, tuition has been made uh, you know free. So there's free education in free education and free healthcare in Ecuador, of course. And spending for both has been uh, greatly increased. But perhaps the one most striking feature about Ecuador has been that um, uh, traditionally, traditionally Ecuador has been one of the countries that has been uh, one of the most one of the most unstable and chaotic in Latin America. So before 2006, they they were kicking out the president after about three or four months in the office, and uh, the current sitting president, uh, Rafael Correa, has been in office for 10 years. So, so he must be doing something long. right. We we have to exactly. finish it. We have to finish it there, Dennis. Thank you very much for yes, giving us you. this very informative uh, roundup. And I'm not surprised we don't hear about this in the mainstream media here. That's right. <laughs> No. Too many well, good... you don't hear about anything at all. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, um, talk to you soon. Thank you very much. Absolutely. See you, Dennis. Uh, my pleasure. Uh, yeah, we have to get out of here because the uh, next program is coming up, uh, Asia Pacific Currents. Uh, we uh, spoke to Jerome, Jerome Small about uh, the upcoming Marxist uh, conference. Uh, and Graham from the NTU. Yep. And uh, we had This Is The Week That Was. And uh, we've just been talking to Dennis Rogoff. Uh, about his trip to uh, countries far and uh, far afield in South America. So, uh, see you in a fortnight. Yeah. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.